0: You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com Our reading this morning is Psalms 123 Psalm 123 To you do, I lift my eyes O you who are enthroned in the heavens behold as the eyes of the servants look to the hand of the master, as the eyes of the maidservant to the hand of her mistress. So our eyes look to the Lord, our Lord, till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us. For we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of of the proud. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. Amen. You can be seated if you're still standing. Uh, Psalm 123, as we just heard it read by our brother Adam, is a short and it's a simple, yet it's a really beautiful poem. It's a poem about the place where the follower of God runs when he or she finds themselves in the clutches of contempt and scorn or in a deep place of suffering. Aspergian said this of this psalm, the eyes are now looking above the hills and above Jehovah's footstool on earth to his throne in the heavens. Let us know it as the psalm of the eyes. Old authors call it oculus sparrans, which just sounds like something from Harry Potter, or the eye of hope, the eye of hope hope. It is in the moments of suffering in our lives that we begin to understand where our eyes turn to for hope. And perhaps 2020 has given us too many moments to test this spiritual and emotional reflex in our lives. Where or to what have we turned in moments of crisis this year for hope? This is the question we're going to ponder this morning together, while I believe we will glory together in the end in how God provides a beautiful answer to us in this psalm. And we're going to walk through this psalm in just four simple steps. First, we're going to talk about the opposition, then the king, the servant, and the help. So in point one, in the opposition, we're going to talk in from verses three and four, this description of those that are coming against the psalm those that would seek to sort of tear the psalmist and his friends down. Second, we're going to talk about the king in verses 1 and 2. The eye to the the eye of the psalmist and his friends, where is it going to as the psalmist looks for hope in his suffering. Third, we'll look at the servant in verse 2, a description of a devoted servant of God. What does that look like in our lives? And then last, we'll look at the help in verses 2 and 3. What the servants ask of their king, what we too ask of our God and king. So first, the opposition. First, what is sort of the reason the psalmist is penning this psalm? What is sort of the the pressure that he is feeling that drives him to write this poem? Because there's a real sense of urgency when you read this psalm. There's a real sense that the psalmist is under pressure and desiring for something to change. And this urgency is sparked by the very real and present opposition he and his people are facing. In verses 3 and 4, it says this, have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease of the contempt of the proud. You know, I love the honesty of the Psalms and I am sure you too as well. I think that that's why it's such a popular place to land in the scriptures. The psalmist here just literally tells God, we've had enough. You know, it's like when your parents say, like, right, I've had it up to here, right? This is what the psalmist is literally saying to God. I've had it up to here with this contempt and with this scorn that he is experiencing from those that are around him. But what's going on here? In our passage this morning, there seems to be two groups of people. There are those that are calling out for mercy and those that are hurling contempt and scorn at them. There's this group of servants and then there's this group of the opposition. And how do we understand the opposition here? What is happening in this scorn and contempt? What is driving this? Well, I think thematically and poetically in this psalm, that we should look at the description in verse 2 of the servant, juxtaposed against the description of the enemy voices in verses 3 and 4. In verse 2, you have a people who are intently serving. We'll get to that in a minute, but they are intently serving, watching and waiting on the Lord. Then in verse 3, you have a description of a people who are at ease, literally sort of hanging back, not too worried, not too watchful, and they're proud. You will see sort of the opposite set of values and attitudes between these two groups of people, the servants and the opposition. In one verse, you have a people who are humbling themselves in response to a God who is enthroned in heaven and divesting themselves with their own will to watch and wait on the Lord. And in the other verses, you have a description of a people who are at ease and proud. They're not serving, they're not thinking of others as they direct their energies to showing contempt and scorn against the folks that are serving God. The opposition against them, the opposition against the psalmist and his friends, seems to be coming from a place of personal contempt. Contempt is a word that carries with it not just a sense of disregard or apathy, but personal dishonor, and to despise someone. It's a personal word with personal implications, and they don't like them for who they are. And who they are are servants of God. So in effect, the opposition they are facing is because they have chosen to follow God. The psalmist and his friends describe themselves as servants of God, as a people who are dedicated not to themselves, but to the God of heaven. And to those around them, they seem foreign, different, Right? Perhaps they even seem morally uptight to those that would be around them. And it is at these times of this sort of hatred and contempt being hurled against them that causes them to say, This is insufferable. I am suffering and I have had enough. And I think the story for us is sort of an unfortunate, fortunate, sort of like a sorry, not sorry story, because the life of a godly servant is one of promised opposition. Even Jesus himself said, right, in this world, you will have trouble. And as followers of Jesus, we too find ourselves at times feeling very foreign, maybe morally uptight to those around us. And at times we can feel out of sync with the culture And that can cause us to suffer at the hands of those that are around us. I think the novelty of this psalm, of Psalm 123, is not so much the fact that the servants of God are experiencing opposition, but it's how they respond to that opposition. In a very real sense, the facing of opposition in our lives, especially when it is directed as it appears here, to the very work of God in our lives, is not a badge of dishonor but it is a badge of honor in our lives. When we are targeted by the enemy, whether in spiritual attack, or through the attack of a friend, or a coworker, or a schoolmate, or a professor, or a neighbor, or a family member, those things hurt, and they're hard. But there is a very real spiritual fruit that results to our credit. Once again, Spurgeon said this of this theme, Let us bear our share of this evil which still rages under the sun. And let us firmly believe that the contempt of the ungodly shall turn to our honor in the world to come. Even now it serves as a certificate that we are not of the world. For if we were of the world, the world would love us as its own. In this world you will have trouble. What's the second half of that phrase? But take heart for I have overcome the world, Jesus says. And yet, even beyond that, right, this psalm becomes instruction to us is that not only what do we do when this wickedness is hurled against us, but what do we do when we face any sort of suffering of any kind? And 2020 has, for most of us, if not all of us, brought trouble and suffering into our lives. What do we do when our suffering becomes insufferable? This is the question that we need to answer coming out of this first point, the opposition. So when we experience similar opposition or trouble, where do we run? I think this is really the focus of the psalm, because this is how the psalmist begins in verse 1, to you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Right, so now we talk, we're going to talk about the king, the king, which is our second point. The psalmist purposefully directs his eyes toward, the God, toward God in this psalm. And it makes sense, right? When we find ourselves in trouble, when our suffering has become insufferable, we want to go to someone who has our back. Right? We want to go to someone who can do something about our trouble and our suffering. And for the Christian, that someone is God. That someone is God. That is where we run. But I think a question that we should ask, and I think a way in which the psalmist develops this theme is, who is this God? Because sometimes we can say the name of, we just say the word God, or the name God, or the title God, and it just is another word that we use in our daily lives. But this isn't just a God, or some God, but it's a very particular God to which the psalmist calls. So who is this God? I think the psalmist is describing his eyes in this poem, turning toward a God who he describes in two very distinct ways. Two ways that the psalmist needs to remember about God. In the first, if you could put in the first verse, he says, "To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens." So the first way in which the psalmist describes God is as the one who is enthroned in the heavens. His position. But secondly, at the the last part of verse two, he says, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. The Lord our God is his name. He's specifically naming who the God is that he is talking about or calling out to. So we're going to look at his position and his name similarly. This picture that the psalmist is creating for himself and for us is that God is enthroned in the heavens. And that is a very common picture in the Bible, that we serve a God who is enthroned in the heavens. And positionally, when the Christian recognizes God's position as being enthroned in the heavens, we're recognizing at least two things. He is not like us, right? We are not enthroned in the heavens. And secondly, he is the king. He is on the throne. He is the sovereign one. As much as we hear and love and we should ponder and meditate on the pictures of God as father, brother, bridegroom, friend, we should not forget that he is also the God who is enthroned in the heavens. These gracious relational pictures that he provides, of, provides us of his love should never take away from our awe and fear of him as other, as transcendent, as holy, as worthy of our praise and worship. We should not forget that Moses had to take off his sandals to be in his presence. We should not forget that only one priest once a year could go into the Holy of Holies to be in the presence of his Shekinah glory. We should not forget that in his presence, priest Joshua, the best that Israel had to offer, that his righteousness was like filthy rags. We should not forget that when he he came to earth, that kings traveled for miles and miles just to bring him kingly gifts. Our God is in heaven, and he is holy. And what does it mean to be holy? It means to be distinct, set apart. He's not like us, which shouldn't be a source of knee-knocking fear for us, but a source of hope. Right? When we get to this point where our suffering becomes insufferable, we're not looking for another one of us to solve the problem. We're looking for something outside of us, and that is our God. And not only does this description of our God describe his holy, transcendent nature, but the picture of him on the throne evokes the idea that he is king and sovereign over all things. Our God is enthroned in the heavens, He is not enthroned in City Hall. He is not enthroned in Sacramento. He is not enthroned in Washington, D.C. He is enthroned in the heavens. And these two pictures of God being holy, being set apart, being different from us, and being the king who is sovereign over all things are a picture that evokes this idea of him being sovereign, of him being the one to whom the psalmist runs to in trial and difficulty. The psalmist has a real problem, and we have real problems. So we need to know where to go. And clearly, here where we run is to God himself. Now, the dating of the psalmist is unknown, but the way in which the psalmist talks about God and talks about a situation reminds me of the exile period, when the people of Israel were exiled into Babylon, Jerusalem was in ruins, the temple was in ruins, or perhaps the time right after the exile was, Israel is coming back to the land. This year, I've dedicated the year to reading the book of Daniel, and over and over in the book of Daniel, God is described as the God of the heavens, very similar to this passage. In the book of Daniel, and I think similarly in this psalm, the picture of the God of heaven is one that brings to mind, heart, and soul a God who is above their circumstances. Daniel and his friends lived in exile in Babylon. The city of Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was in ruins. Pagan kings are literally threatening to kill them in every chapter. So Daniel's eyes were on the God of heaven. Though things seemed out of control, though for the psalmist, things seemed out of control, maybe for us, things seemed out of control. They may seem like God forgot. God is very much in control and very much at work. And even in this story of Daniel, you see his fingerprints in every chapter, working his will, working things together for good. And I would imagine for us that this has been our struggle in 2020. It seems like things are out of control. It seems like God has forgotten. Like the psalmist, like Daniel We must retrain our eyes to the God who is enthroned in heaven, to the God who is not scared of COVID, a God who's not scared of social injustice or fires or any other plague that 2020 is ready to hurl at us, that he is working things together for good by his sovereign hand. So that is his position. He is the God who is enthroned in heaven but the psalmist doesn't stop there. And I think this is something that the scriptures do often where they develop our idea. It's a great poetic thing to do. You develop your ideas uh, throughout your writing. So the psalmist continues from his description of him being enthroned in the heavens to the second part of verse two where he says that he, his eyes are looking to the Lord our God until he has mercy upon us. He's not only talking about a God who is enthroned in the heavens, A nameless deity, perhaps like the gods of the nations around them, or perhaps like the gods around us. But he names the object of his eyes. He names the one who is enthroned in the heavens, the Lord our God. Remember, whenever the English translators of your Bible place the letters of Lord in all caps, it is a placeholder for the covenant name of God, or Yahweh. Yahweh is the covenant God of Israel. He's not just some throwaway idol on a shelf, but the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob. He's the God of Moses and Samuel and David. He's the God who delivered them out of Egypt. He's the God who gave them the promised land. He's the God who promised to be with them. He is the God of the Shema that they would recite three times a day that's written down for us in Deuteronomy chapter six. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh, our God, Yahweh is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. He is pointing out here that he is calling out to the God who they have a covenant relationship with. He's saying, we love you and you love us. Come and help. He's calling out to the God whom the psalmist is looking for help and consolation. Is not just enthroned in heaven with terrible power to be feared. He's the God who's described in Exodus 34 like this. Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. For the Christian, this is to whom we too lift our eyes. This is to whom we too call for help. This is to whom is gracious and merciful to us. who is slow to anger with us, who is abounding in steadfast love for us, who is faithful to us. We look to a God who is enthroned in heaven, and yet a God who cares and loves us little people here in Stockton. The great big creator God, and yet the God who is leading, directing, and loving us. He is the God who can change things, So it is to this God that the psalmist and we should run. So that's sort of the opposition and the king, and now we come to the servant. As we view the splendor of our God and king, and perhaps come face to face with the reality that we are not him or equal to him, the question we inevitably come to is, well then who are we? Like who are we in the story? I think this is a question for Reality Church of Stockton that Pastor Christian has put before us in 2020. Who are we? What is our identity? Now, some would say that vision statements like that died in March, right? Because this is 2020, and everything has been thrown out the window. And we're just trying to survive. But I think the heat and the pain and the sorrow and the tears of 2020, have not drowned out the question, who are we, but have made that question so much more potent. Because it is in times like these, it is in times of suffering, it is in times of trouble that who are we is such an important question to settle in our hearts, if we have not already. This is the question that Esther had to answer about herself when the people of Israel were being prepared to slaughter. Who was she? This is a question that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had to answer when Nebuchadnezzar said, Bow down to my idol. Who were they? This is the question that Ruth had to answer when her father in law, her brother in law, her husband died, and her mother in law, who serves this foreign god named Yahweh, is going back to Israel. Who was she? This is the question that Mary had to answer when as a teenager, an angel told her that she was going to birth the Messiah. Who was she? And this is the question that we have to ask ourselves in 2020, who are we? This is a question that our psalmist is quick to answer in verse verse two. He says this, behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, So our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. We know from point two, right, that the eyes are on the Lord, but what sort of eyes do we have? Who are we? The psalmist says, as the eyes of the servants, as the eyes of a maidservant look to the hand of their master or to the hand of her mistress, So our eyes look to the Lord, our God. An important aspect of our relationship to God is that we are his servants in his kingdom. And you can see how the psalmist in these short verses is developing this picture in our minds, right? He's drawing our minds to this idea that we are a part of a kingdom, a part of the kingdom that has a king, and our place in that kingdom is as a servant. If we fill our eyes with all that God is in his enthroned position in heaven, comparative to his position, we are his servants. But what sort of servants are we? I think that's a great question to ask. In In John chapter 16, as Jesus finishes washing his disciples' feet, he looks at them and he encourages them and he tells them, You need to do this likewise to one another. You need to go and be servants to one another. And this would not have been an unfamiliar call or an unfamiliar theme to them because Jesus talked a lot about servants in his teaching and in his parables. Excuse me, that was in John chapter 13. But the question becomes, well, what sort of servants are we trying to become? Because Jesus talked a lot about a lot of different types of of servants, He talked about lazy servants, defiant servants, murderous servants, disgruntled servants. What sort of servants do we long and desire to be? The psalmist gives us this picture in this verse of servants that are trained, focused, attentive to even the slightest movement of the master's hand. In the Mideast culture, there was this idea that some masters didn't command their servants with verbal commands, but would command them with the wave of a hand or a gesture of a hand. So the servant had to watch, had to wait, had to train, couldn't blink to be sure that he didn't miss what the master was doing or what the master wanted. And this is the type of servant that we long to be, one who is in tune with the master's needs, commands, and will. And for us, we need to train our focus on the enthroned God of heaven. We are looking, waiting, watching, anxiously anticipating the movement of his hand. And this requires us to be particularly attentive It's interesting that the scriptures have a theme throughout them of wakefulness, watchfulness, and sober-mindedness. There's almost this idea and sense throughout the ages that the people of God have a tendency to fall asleep at the wheel, have a tendency to become complacent, have a tendency to forget, to wander, have a tendency to be at ease, like those who are in the opposition in our passage. But it is our goal, it is our desire, it is our aim to be very much the opposite, to be focused, watchful, wakeful, sober servants. Now our response to these two verses in this whole sort of talk of kingdoms and kings and servants and masters may be to say, well, this kinda seems a little bit oppressive. I'm not sure about those other guys in verses three and four. Maybe it's not the oppressors who are oppressive, maybe it's this king who's oppressive, right? Where this is 2020, we've been liberated, we're free. And in answering the question, who are we, we inevitably come face to face with a similar yet different question. Whose are we? You know, the idea or the philosophy or worldview that says that freedom is doing whatever we want is not freedom, right? Because my freedom then infringes on your freedom and then I enslave you to my freedom because I I just wanna be free. We're all serving someone or something. And at times, perhaps many times, our masters have competing and irreconcilable differences. And I think deep down in the human experience, we intuitively know this to be true, that we serve something. That there is something beyond just sort of our own agency that is driving our decision making, that that is driving our choices, that is desiring what we value. Whether that be our bank accounts, whether that be our spouse, whether that be our kids, our jobs, our schools, our vices, something is controlling our movements and decisions. So the question is not, are you serving something? The question is, have you chosen the right master? Eugene Peterson, a pastor and author, says this. The Christian is a person who recognizes that our real problem is not in achieving freedom, but in learning service under a better master. The Christian realizes that every relationship that excludes God becomes oppressive recognizing and realizing that we urgently want to live under the mastery of God. It is our desire as Christians to be mastered by God. It is our desire to be in his kingdom as him, as king, and us as servants, and for him to be calling the shots in our lives, because that is what is good for us. Whether it seems intuitive or not, in our sort of prevalent worldview around us. And it is this mastery of God that becomes the antidote to our problems. It is giving in to God that becomes the power against the evil that is without and that is also within. Because what is the aim of the enemy here? There is a pull by the contemptuous and the proud to bring our focus down from the heavens and to situate our lives, our vision, our focus on the material, right? It's things like, why are you serving this God? What has he done for you? But it is the job of the Christian to fight that impulse and to look upward, to train our focus on the sovereign God of heaven. The hurtful and even slanderous remarks of the enemy in our lives are meant to cause us to question our position and place in the kingdom, right? It's things like, really? Does God really want the best for you? Is it really worth giving up everything that you've given up to follow him? Does it really make sense, right? And what does that sound like? What does that line of questioning sound like? Well, that sounds like serpent talk from Genesis. The goal of the enemy is to bring our eyes downward upon our circumstances and to cause us to replace our identity in God with a lesser self-controlled identity. So what is it that we are seeking when we are being bombarded with this sort of opposition? Well, we're looking for help. We're looking for the help, which is the final point of the sermon. I said before that the mastery of God is the antidote to our problems. There is this idea in the Bible of being filled. We often pray this over one another, right? Or we pray this to God in our morning time. We say, I want to be filled with the Spirit, right? And we know that that idea is not, right, like, you know, you are a quarter filled and you are two thirds filled, but the idea is that we want to be taken over. We want to be consumed. We want Christ to be living in us and not us living in us. And in this psalm, the psalmist says, I am filled with opposition. Opposition is trying to control me and control my movements and what I do and the, cho- the choices that I make. And yet we see something else has already filled his cup. His service and his dedication and his knowledge of who he is in the kingdom. We know this to be true because we read his response at the end of verse 2 and beginning of verse 3. This is what the psalmist does when he calls for help. So our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us. The psalmist's response to, is not to lose his focus. The psalmist's response is not to avert his eyes from the hand of the master or to lash out irrationally at his enemies, but to call upon the name of the Lord for help and for mercy. Now, what is a call for mercy? Because mercy is a word that we use a lot in the church, and sometimes it just seem like a churchy word that we say. I think, once again, Eugene Peterson is quite helpful. He says this of the call for mercy. The word mercy means that the upward look to God in the heavens does not expect God to stay in the heavens, but to come down. To enter our condition, to accomplish the vast enterprise of redemption, to fashion in us his eternal salvation. The psalmist call for mercy is quite literally calling God off his throne to come and to help. How often do we feel the same need? Our suffering becomes insufferable and our response is, God, you've got to come down. I need you here. I need to know what to do. I need you to stop this or open this door or to do this. I need you to be here in our presence. And there is such good news for us this morning because this is the God that we serve. The psalmist does not call out to God for mercy for nothing, but because he knows that it is in his character to provide mercy. The God that we serve is the one who comes down to be with his people. That is his character. That is his desire. That is what he has told his people all throughout the ages. He is the one who walks with us through the valley of the shadow of death. He is the God who sits with us in our pain and our suffering. He is the God who has promised to work all things, all things, even our opposition, even our suffering, together for our good. And ultimately, we see this most beautifully realized in the person of Jesus. Oftentimes, we can have this view of God that he is so far up in heaven that he doesn't understand our hurt and our pain and our suffering But in Jesus, we have a God who has experienced deep hurt, pain, and suffering. Jesus experienced, much like the psalmist experienced, hurtful and malicious, contempt and scorn. Just read the Gospels, right? The religious leaders are following him around, constantly haranguing him, testing him, like telling him that he shouldn't heal people, trying to turn people from him. And as you read the Gospels, you see Jesus constantly attacked, And the contempt and the scorn of the religious leaders, builds and builds and builds to such a breaking point that it is not Jesus who breaks. It's not Jesus who had enough, but it's the religious leaders who had had enough. And then they murdered Jesus. And it is his sacrifice on the cross that breaks the veil in the temple that gives us access to the throne of God to call out for Mercy to call out for mercy in our time of need. Him experiencing contempt and scorn and death for us as a significant level of value. As we direct our songs, our prayers, our hopes to God in times of desperation, we have a savior who now sits as our sympathetic high priest, who is familiar with our pain and our suffering and who suffers along with us. Now to end our time, we want to understand, well, what is our response? What do we do with Psalm 123? I think at the very base level, the psalm is its own application. When we find ourselves having our fill of difficulty, turning to the God of heaven is our application. We should do what the psalmist does. We should run to him in our time of need, train our eyes on his throne, and call out for mercy and help. And when we do just that, I think it validates something for us. Prayer is an act of defiance against the voices of contempt and scorn around us. It is saying, you may think that you're filling me up, but I'm already filled by the Spirit. It's saying, I am filled by something greater than your contempt. I'm filled by God." himself. You do not own me. You do not control me. Oftentimes, as Christians, we're looking for barometers and thermometers of of faith. How do we know that we're, like, headed in the right direction? How do we know that we're meant to succeed? Success is not the absence of trouble, but is the presence of committed prayerfulness in times of trouble. As much as we desire for God to be merciful to us, we are at his mercy and when we understand the character of God, being at his mercy, there's no better place to be. And maybe this morning you're, you're watching this live stream because you stumbled upon it or you've been invited over to a house with a friend and you're saying, well, I'm not a part of the kingdom. Well, the opening hands of Jesus say, come. Come and, and experience this relationship. Come to the place where your suffering can be shared with a God who has the power to change things. Come and be a part. Secondarily, we should assess our response to those who hold us in contempt and scorn. Jesus was brilliant at instructing his followers to not repay evil for evil, but to repay evil for good. We see this theme woven throughout his teachings and the interactions of his own life. Even as he was being nailed to the cross, right, he's asking for the Father to to forgive his executioners. It should be our desire as faithful disciples of Jesus to do the same, to follow in his footsteps, to turn contempt to love. Pray, bless those who curse you. To turn pride into humility, serve those who hate you. As you call down for mercy from the Father, don't just pray for enough mercy for you, but pray for enough mercy for the one who is opposing you that one day they would be added to the number of the saints. This morning, we should recognize and realize and ask questions like, well, where are our eyes? Are our eyes on the God who is enthroned in heaven or have we chosen to serve a lesser master? We should ask questions like, what am I doing with the contempt that is being hurled at me? We should wrestle with those questions together as a community. We should turn our eyes and our focus to the God who provides mercy. Pray with me. Father.